Hello, everyone. This is Carter, and welcome to this episode of Making It Up, the conversation series where I get to sit down and have lovely chats with other writers. And at the end, we make up a short story together. Um, and I'm always a little, I'm always a little stressed out going into these things. I'm always a little nervous because um, most of these people, I don't know who they are at all. Uh, and so I'm meeting them for the first time, and and you know, you wonder what the energy is going to be like between the two of you. You wonder if you're going to run out of things to ask. Um, I never do, fortunately. Um, and I try not to say anything too stupid. And if I do, I have an editor who can take that out. Um, but today I was a little nervous today. I am not going to, I'm not going to lie. Um, today I spoke to Daniel Handler, who's got a bunch of books on his own. Uh, and he also writes under the name Lemony Snicket. So you might know Lemony Snicket, a series of unfortunate events among other books, um, so obviously, huge acclaim, over 70 million uh, copies in print. Um, so yeah, he's kind of a big deal. So I was a little bit scared going into it. Um, he's got a new book out under Lemony Snicket called Poison for Breakfast, which I am dying to read. Um, it looks it looks fantastic. He's a, he's a dark-minded fellow, um, but not kind of what I expected. Uh, I love talking to him. We talked about, you know, Terry Gilliam movies. We talked about, you know, growing up, what growing up in San Francisco was like for him and, you know, the long, slow, steady burn, uh, that it was for him to get published and to become a full-time author. Uh, so I, I felt like, I don't know, I kind of felt like we had some things in common. Um, certainly not the number of books in print, but, um, uh, maybe some other things. Uh, so anyway, it was a great time. And at the end we, we made up a, <laughs> a pretty dark, um, short story that began with a sentence from, uh, Anne Rice's, uh, interview with the vampire. So all in all a good time. Uh, I hope you enjoy this. This is me talking to Daniel Handler, also known as Lemony Snicket. Yeah. Hi. Hi. It's such a pleasure to meet you. It's nice to meet you. Sorry. I thought we were already looking at each other. Oh, you were looking at me and, and my COVID-y face. Hopefully it's. Yeah. Fine. I try to arrange it so that I don't look at myself, but I don't actually think I can do that on Zoom. I think I have to do it <laughs> yeah, on other platforms, as we say. So uh, where, where are you? Your COVID nervousness. I'm in oh, San Francisco. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, I spent yeah. a couple of years there, way back in the in the early 90s when I worked in a, a hotel in Chinatown for a couple of years. Oh, yeah? Yeah, um, it's a hill. I lived there in the early 90s. I'm from here, and I, I went to school elsewhere, and I lived for about uh, four or five years in New York, but mostly I've been here. So I was here in the early 90s. Did, did you grow up in, um, in the, the city of San Francisco or were you in the outskirts? I did. I grew up in the city of San Francisco, so I'm really snobby about everything. <laughs> I, lived, I lived on, um, on Eddy Street, mm -hmm. just uh, by uh, not too far from uh, the Kabuki Theater, uh, just as it was kind of gentrifying a little bit. So 92, yeah. 93. So it was cool. It was affordable. It was also a little scary. Yeah. Um, but I haven't been back in a little while. It, um, that neighborhood is, has sunk back down out of gentrification a little bit, but oh, has it? I mean, you know, some gentrification sticks permanently, I'm sure, but um, but yeah, it's not as. Um, but I remember that period of time where it was like on its, it was on a on a way 
up. Some, right. I, don't know, I don't want to say up because gentrification often makes everything worse. Right, right. Um, it was changing. Uh, that's right. It was changing. I uh, I remember, I so I used to take the 38 Gary bus and I was working like a 4 p.m. to midnight shift. So I take the 38 Gary down to Kearney Street. And, and after my first shift, after I moved there, so midnight coming back and, you know, there was a lot of prostitution back then in that area. And sure. I was all of, I don't know, 22 years old, maybe. And, right. you know, I thought they were filming a movie because it was so, <laughs> I mean, it was literally the, the lingerie against the, the lamppost. And right. I was looking for the, and I'm like, oh, they're filming a movie. I'm like, oh, wait, this is, <laughs> this is not a movie. Right. John Carpenter is not involved in this at all. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so what, what was that like for you growing up in San Francisco? Um, I loved it. It was really marvelous. I lived in a quiet residential neighborhood. Um, that was great when I was a kid. Like there were like, you could bicycle all over the place. And, um, there was like 4th of July parties with people lighting off fireworks and things like that. And then, but it was close via public transportation to more exciting parts of the city. So when I became an adolescent, then I was like a doorway to, more exciting places. So it was pretty steadily a great place to grow up. I would say. Were you, um, were you given as a child kind of free reign with the, the bus system and things like that? Yeah. I mean, um, then it wasn't considered free reign then, I guess. Is- right. 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 <laughs> you and I are, I think approximately the same age and, and yeah, I know it was just, that was just, you were just a kid. Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was like, no, I'm not going to drive you there. That was more what it was instead of free reign. Um, yeah, I took the bus a lot. Uh, and, um, I was actually just talking with my sons. My son is, um, 17, almost 18. And, um, I just talked about how getting places was so slow via, via, via public transportation. That was often like kind of the whole evening, you know, if it was like, right, right. I'm going to, I'm going to pick you up and then we're going to pick this other person up. And I was like, <laughs> it's almost time to go home by the time. Right. We yeah. Cause you probably didn't have a car. Like you personally, as a kid, like when you were I mean, a little later, I would borrow my parents' car sometimes, yeah. but, um, but you know, it was just easiest. I mean, public transportation was easy. Um, and it was kind of magical and it's opening up a little bit now, but my son missed basically two years of like taking the bus and hanging out with people because yeah. of right. so part of that is like a more sheltered adolescence, which is just a bummer. Right. Um, right. It is so weird. So my daughter is, yeah, she just turned 18 and her senior year obviously was spent in, in COVID. And I think about all the, the sleepless nights I probably would have had, <laughs> had, had there not been COVID and she would have been out with friends and I would have been worried about her driving and, and this and that, but yeah. you know, so she missed out on all that, but I also got to miss out on all the anxiety associated with it. Yeah. I mean, I think by the end of it, it, it seemed so sad to us that we knew exactly where our son was at all, all the times, you know, it was almost like I wanted to give him like, right. You know, a pound and a half of cocaine and the <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Go after adventure. I should be worried about you. Instead, right. I right. know that you're downstairs gaming. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good way to send your co- kids off to college too is a pound and a half of cocaine along with the COVID. That <laughs> <laughs> they love that. Yeah, particularly if they're gifts from dad. Either one of them. That's a great way to nail it with your roommate. <laughs> so what did you you have siblings? 
I do. I have a younger sister. We're very close. Okay. So like a couple years apart or. Um, she was a freshman in high school when I was a senior in high school. So that part was probably not great for her, but, um, but we've always been really close. Um, we were hanging out today. We hang out a lot. Oh, so she's still in San Francisco as well. Yeah. We both came back here. I mean, it's the nice thing about raising your kids somewhere amazing is that everything looks pretty pale in comparison. Right. Right. Um, when I left for college, I remember that I had this notion of like, what I like is a medium-sized city because San Francisco is a medium-sized city. Right. So that must be what I like, a medium-sized city. And then like, I spent a summer in Pittsburgh and I was like, I don't think all these medium-sized cities are the same. No, I, I, I Pittsburgh, that's actually funny you say that. That's where I moved to San Francisco from was Pittsburgh. I, I worked for a year there and then straight to San Francisco. So yeah, although Pittsburgh was nicer than I was kind of expecting it to be. But oh, I think, I think Pittsburgh has its charms for sure, but it isn't like um, an incredibly diverse, leftist, sexually open, naturally beautiful uh, city full of everyone that I have already known since childhood. So, right. Yeah. And it's so self-contained. Uh, you know, it's just yeah. there it is. That's San Francisco. And it's just kind of, yeah, it, it is. It is a wonderful city if you could afford it. <laughs> I yeah. think that's probably the, the the biggest complaint, obviously, is that that's, that's pretty tough there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's the biggest complaint of people who can't afford it is that <laughs> I mean, if you can afford it here, you're, you still watch so many people leave and so many things um, collapse under the weight of the, the kind of financial juggernaut that is happening. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you and you went to you. So were you as you're growing up and, and riding the bus everywhere and picking up friends? Are you? Are you just a naturally creative kid? Are you reading books? Are you curious? Yeah, I was, I mean, I wanted to be a writer from a very, very young age. And I was, um, uh, yeah, I was, I mean, there. I always had a book with me for sure on the bus. Um, I often did the thing uh, where I would finish a book and then I would realize that I had to take another bus and I would go to a bookstore, to a used bookstore, and I would try to make the direct trade, um, which no bookseller wants. They don't right, want right. right. We're not a library. So. Like, I'm done with this and I want this now. Can we make it feel? Right. Um, that'll help you with your rent. Um, but yeah, I was a serious reader. Um I fell into a crowd of pretty serious readers, um, huh. just to say a pretentious crowd, I guess is what would be another way to put it. Well, it depends on what you're reading. Yeah, we were reading pretty serious literature. We were pretty snooty about it. But um, but yeah, from a very young age, I knew this. I wanted to be close to literature and reading. So I went to the library a lot when I was younger. And um, I mean, San Francisco is still pretty uh, full of bookstores, but it was really full of bookstores then. Um, what kind of books were you picking up? Um, I mean, I, I really marvel at like what my guidance system was, but basically, um, I had a notion of like stuff that was important that I should be reading. You know, like I remember someone told me that the character in Star Trek was named Chekhov and that was like an homage to a writer named Chekhov. Right. I remember that I had no idea how Chekhov was spelled, but I used to look up like, so then finally when I, when I, I was like, oh my God, this is like very important. And what I think that it, I mean, Chekhov is an important writer and he's great to read, but I don't know how many people get in through the 
Star Trek door. <laughs> right. Right. All, all those literary re- references throughout the yeah. uh, next generation. Um, but yeah, I read that. I mean, I, I read, I had a great library and, um, so I got into PG Wodehouse really young and I mean, Baudelaire, I, I, when I huh. was 12, I, um, saw a copy of the flowers of evil, which I'm sure I thought was like a horror novel. Right. <laughs> um, and I brought it home and it's not a horror novel for those not yet tuned in <laughs> to French poetry of the previous century, but, um, but it was so crazy and wild and sexy. Um, and that was all really appealing to me. So, so you, yeah. So you gravitated towards things that maybe you weren't even totally understanding, but knew that maybe you weren't supposed to be totally understanding. Yeah. Well, they were very alluring. Right. Right. And, and, um, and people talked about them, you know, someone was like, Oh, Baudelaire, you know, and they, and then I was like, Oh, there must be some juicy part. I better read these pages of like poetry to try to find like one little thing. Um, but I mean, I went to City Lights Books a lot, which sure. is obviously an institution. But, um, you know, I think they kind of pride themselves on tilting young people towards subversive literature. So I'm sure I got some help there. Um, yeah, and it's, any- a, it's interesting because you have such a, a dark and, and, and dark sense of humor, which is, I think, is such an inherent trait. I don't think that's something, I mean, it, it seems to me almost you'd also, also enjoy Monty Python and, and, and reading those, um, <laughs> reading those scripts. Yeah, I did like Monty Python for sure. Um, but I liked, um, more deadpan things. I mean, when I was 14, I think I saw Stranger Than Paradise, the first, oh, I, I guess it's the second Jim Darmish movie, but, um, and so the first I saw, and I thought that was really amazing, like a really amazing kind of stasis. And I liked that it didn't really tell you when it was funny. It just let you figure out if you should be laughing or not. Right. And, um, that was the kind of thing I liked more. So I did like Monty Python. That used to be on um, PBS late at night. So I would come home from going out with my friends and my mom and I would watch a couple of episodes of Monty Python at like 11. That was pretty fun. And and so much of it, you know, I would watch it and there was a lot that I didn't get like him because it's the, the a severe British sensibility. Um, and also I'm 14 at the time. And, and, and some of it, I would just laugh uproariously. Some of it, I'm like, I, I don't get it, but it's so weird. It's compelling. Um, yeah. And you, and it was, um, it, it encouraged you to join a gang kind of, I mean, right. I think that's the kind of culture that I like and Monty Python is definitely an example where it's like, if you don't get that the ministry of silly walks is kind of making fun of government bureaucracy, which you don't have to get, but you understand that it isn't just someone walking funny. It's making fun of something in some right. way. And then it encourages you to kind of join that, gang and then there were the great um animated sequences that really made no sense at all and right I think terry that, gilliam yeah. yeah and i think that helped you say okay i didn't understand this and here's something that definitely nobody understands <laughs> right as a transition piece i'm okay yeah right. yeah terry gilliam's art is so absurdist and 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 unrelatable, but so compelling. And to this day, uh, his movie Brazil is, is one of my favorite movies of all yeah, time. Yeah. I mean, he's just an amazing filmmaker overall. Um, I, uh, I met him 
when I was a grown up and um, I, I, I was like afraid to talk. I mean, <laughs> right. was like, I can talk to you for four hours without stopping or right. I can say, hello, nice to meet you. But I'm not sure I can do anything in between. That. Right, right. I, so I, I, I assume you just said hello. <laughs> yeah, I like sat on the same sofa as him for a long time, but I was really nervous about talking because um, I just thought he was so amazing. And the um, and and that kind of sensibility to that kind of marvelous storytelling and then it zooms in for a joke. It's like unafraid to just have a stupid joke in the middle. It's unafraid to be really dark and scary. Right. Uh, it's unafraid to kind of stay in childhood a lot. You know, I think his best movies always have the semblance of um, childhood going on. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, that was one of the best examples of, I think, you know, of, of corporate Hollywood taking over a movie in Brazil where, you know, he was unafraid to have a very, very dark and tragic ending to a movie that, you know, this the studio completely wanted to change and it became yeah. a huge Although when you think about it now, like what was the studio doing with Brazil to, in the first place? <laughs> right. Because like, well, Robert De Niro was in it, maybe. <laughs> I guess. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that was it was a really magical time um for filmmaking too. And I think I mean the bad news is that I think it was so hard to get different films made and certainly there was a certain certain kind of people who were way more welcome in Hollywood than others. And there was a, that was a it was a crummy time in, in terms of that. Um, it did mean that there was a lot of you felt like there was a bona fide underground culture that you could have access to. You know, right. now there's like an unending number of movies. I've lost track of the number of times that I've read a book or seen a graphic novel or something and said, "Oh, this should be a TV show." And someone says, "Like, yeah, they're on season four right now, man. They've been doing it already." <laughs> right. Right. Uh, and at the time, all those movies and San Francisco had great art house theaters. So you could see them five and six times. You know, they'd come back twice a year. Wings of Desire, The Brother from Another Planet. Right. Uh, all the Terry Gilliam and Jim Jarma stuff, Sid and Nancy, you know. Right. Uh, all that was in the same category. Right. Like, it's weird. It's not mainstream. You're not going to understand it. Right. It's Naked Lunch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, there's going to be weird violence. <laughs> yeah. Right. Everything about it was great. So how did, you know, you, you said you knew you wanted to be a writer. Did that manifest itself into an actual action plan or that was just, oh, I'll study English in college? Or, or did you actually look into like, well, what is being a writer look like as a, as a real job? Um, I had a really good mentor in college. So when I got to college, there was a famous writer who taught um, where I was. And I, I went to, to get in her class. You needed to be interviewed. And she was really mean to me. <laughs> the best ones always are. Yeah. Remember she said, I guess, I, I remember she said, you have to bring your credentials. And I was like, well, I, here are some poems that were published in my high school literary magazine, you know? And she was like, these are not good credentials at all. Which looking back on it, like I was 18. I don't know what she expected. Right, exactly. Like, oh, here's my Pulitzer Prize, by the way. And so, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, <laughs> And she said, so for the first class, um, we're going to memorize poems. I'm going to give you a poem to memorize. And then we're all going to meet in a field and we're going <laughs> to recite them. And I remember that I like was a like, cult. <laughs> yeah. And it made me nervous. I felt like it was my sure. first day of um, uh, like medical school. And I fainted at the sight of blood. You know, I was like, mm -hmm. oh, right, I don't right. want this. I don't want to do this. I want to be a writer. And so I didn't take her class and I met at this kind of dinner thing for English students, I met this writer I'd never heard of, 
who became my mentor all my life. We lost her a few years ago. Um, and her writing class was that you turned in 10 pages of fiction every week and you mm -hmm. sat with her in her kitchen and she talked to you about it. And she had you read things that were what you wanted to be. She had you watch things, which was already amazing to me that like watching TV or movies could actually feed your fiction instead of it being like the secret sin that wasn't literature. Yeah. And, um, and she just really worked on like the minute details of senses and, um, that was a really great education in being a writer because she kept saying, if you don't like doing this, you're not going to like being a writer. Like the image <laughs> of being a writer is great, but like doing it, if you don't like doing it, you're going to have a miserable time. Right. And I still meet writers to the state, like established writers who I think I wish that they'd thought out whether they actually like the writing part. Right. right. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot, like a lot of people like don't. Pontificating part. <laughs> it's fun to say you're a writer. Yeah. Right. They like the, I don't have to go to the office today, but they don't, but they don't like writing. So I think that was, I didn't, I, I think had I been self-directed, I would have had as lofty fantasies as anyone else. But, but um, Kit Reed was a good mentor for me. But don't you think as a writer, you know, kind of inherently you either have that passion for it or you don't, whether or not you're kind of told that or taught that, you know, when you're sitting down and, and you just kind of get swept into, cause there's days that suck too, right? There's days that it's like data entry and I've got to get these yeah. words done and it's not fun at all. And I think that's the hard part of being a writer is the consistency of it. But then the days where you're kind of swept into it and you're alone and you're in this little bubble, I mean, I, I think if you don't have that, then you're, I don't know how you can make it. I mean, I think that's true, but I think when you're young, you don't know if you have it or not. Because well, that's true. You know, you're yeah. busy being a student. You don't really have that time. You might participate in something, you know, slam poetry or a, a little contest here or something like that. You might get to do kind of flex your creative muscles every so often, but you don't get to do it all the time. And for an undergraduate, like 10 pages a week. Was I was about to say, yeah, if you have to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't write that the night before. You know, you had to do it. Right. Yeah. And, and so what was that? Were those like just independent short stories? Was it just, you know, flash fiction? Stories. One of them turned into like a kind of a novella. And then um, I I tried to write a novel. Uh, I, I mean, I did write a novel, but, but I, I knew it wasn't good. And um, Kit really worked with me. And she kept saying, you know, a lot of people when they're learning how to write a novel will write a whole novel that they throw out because they're just learning how to do it. And she was being as gentle as she could. Like, I, I kept thinking, oh, those, <laughs> just those giving you a heads suckers. up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I was like, oh, those poor suckers who like have to throw away the novel. That wouldn't happen to me, which of course it did. Um, yeah. Three for that, me. But I mean, it did mean that I had, um, you know, a few hundred pages under my belt by the time I was like 22. Right. And I just think numerically, I mean, this is something I think that um, like Malcolm Gladwell has said about a lot of things. But like numerically as a writer, it's like you have to write a certain number of terrible pages before you were writing anything good. And so you might as well start them right away. Right. And you build, well, you're building a muscle too. And, and I think the muscle part, after a series of time, you know, I don't outline. So that's always a challenge for me. But once I know what I'm writing now, the, the muscle kicks in where I'm like the actual writing is easy. Whereas when I started, it was, it was every sentence was, you know, a, a trench warfare <laughs> trying to get through. I don't know if that yeah. was the same for you. Well, for sure. I mean, I think there's this, um, what's hard is that, you know, it's not as good 
as you want it to be, particularly when you're starting out. I mean, it never is kind of, right. but I think really when you're starting, you feel that distance and it's, it's really depressing. And particularly, I think when you're kind of young and arrogant, you know, when you're like, all those books suck, and you know, there's only like 10 good books. Right. And then you're like, and I am definitely not writing the 11th right now. <laughs> <laughs> but that self-awareness is important. Yeah. It's just tough. Yeah. Right. It's really tough. Um, right. And, um, and that, yeah, so that was definitely hard, but also, but I also really, really liked it. You know, I had a series of miserable jobs and by far the best part of my day was like those, I got to go home in the afternoons. One of my jobs started in the afternoon. So I had the mornings and I would just sit and write whatever I wanted. And that felt really, really powerful. That was really powerful to me. So you graduate college and you work a series of miserable jobs, but what's the, what's the thought process that, that you're going to write a novel and that's going to be your first stab at, at getting published or short stories or what were you thinking? Yeah. A novel for sure. Yeah. Um, so, um, yeah. So I just got cracking kind of, I mean, um, it was, it was, I mean, this mentor, Kit Reed, was really good to me after college. I mean, she would still read drafts. I mean, when I think That's about fantastic. it, reading like 10 pages of nine or 10 students, you know, stuff every week. And that's still <laughs> when her old student called her was like, I have 200 pages and I'm scared and I don't know what I'm doing. She like, sure, <laughs> send it to me. Yeah, that's a huge commitment. Yeah, she she was really good. And so that. I mean, she helped me see things and she was really good at teaching me how to read like a writer, basically to say, you're trying to do something here that I've seen in another book, read this other book, but not, don't just read it, you know, look at the part, find the part that you like best, find the part that's moving the way you want it to move and take a look at that. And, um, that was a real gift. And that when I teach, I don't teach that often, but when I teach or when I'm trying to help another writer, I like to say, okay, tell me what, what you're trying to do. And invariably, they're like, I know it sounds corny, but the very end of this Cormac McCarthy book is like, oh, if I could do that. And I say, like, oh, you need to read that like 20 times with a pen in your hand. Right, right. You know, you need to really, really look, how does he do it? Right. What are the, what are, you know, is it dialogue? Is it description? What are the, what's the, you have a bunch of long sentences and then one short one. What is the structure of that? And um, so I spent a lot of time doing that. I spent a lot of time, um, like looking at what I thought were the best things in literature and trying to swallow them. And it's still kind of how I work. I mean, I'm looking around now and I have a pile of books for the book that I'm working on, but like I go back to, I tear right. apart, I'm like trying to figure it out. <laughs> I mean, and some of those, the, the best books you kind of never do really, because I, I mean, I think, you know, and I've said this before, Cormac McCarthy's the road to me is, is the, the high water mark of, 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 of books. And, I go in and analyze. I'm like, why, why am I so enamored of every single word in this book? And it's hard for me to, you know, and I certainly could never emulate it, but it's hard for me to even describe, you know, how evocative his nonsensical words and his lack of punctuation, how it just works. I mean, I think that's true, but I also think for me anyway, um, I'll think of some certain scene, you know, I'll just say like, oh, there's this part 
there, like there's a great moment in an Alice Monroe story that I was just looking at where one character basically accidentally reveals information to another character. It's kind of too long to give everybody the context, but I literally went to that scene. Right. I said, okay, what is it? What is it doing there? It's almost like I felt like a cinematographer, you know, like right. where I, we're looking over here then we're looking over here. And um, I mean, I love the road, but I actually think there's like a great scene in um, no country for old men where the sentences are really beautiful, but it's moving really quickly, mm-hmm. really terrifying. They're in this ravine and everybody's like getting them in the dark. And um, I've, uh, I'm doing the part where I put it away for a year, but I have a draft of like a scary book. And I totally read that scene over and over again to say, Oh, wow. Okay, what's happened. What, how did, how did he do that? And I don't know if I unlocked it, but I do think that that spending time next to it was like a good, powerful way to help. Do you feel that that influences your voice? Like, are you afraid of like, okay, I'm going to sound too much like this author or this author that you're reading these scenes over and over again? I mean, I don't think so. I mean, I think with really strong voices, you're going to know if you're faking it. Right. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine if I was like actually trying to fake Cormac McCarthy (laughs) (laughs) or Alice Monroe for that matter? Right. You know, and so I think you can't just, you can't do it, but you can, something can sneak in there, even if it's the, right. j- just the rhythm of it or like some word that worked well. And you're like, oh, I'm going to use this word. And then you rewrite it. And then it's no longer the word, but in your head, you're like, oh, that's something I stole from. Right. Her. I right. think part of it is I had a really good um, music education too. I was lucky enough to have that. And i right. um, still friends with musicians. I'm like, musicians are so open about stealing. They're way more open than, not, than writers are. You know, if you say to a, a musician, like, oh, my God, that, like, the guitar solo, and that is amazing. And they're always just like, oh, it's like, I took half from Abbey Road, and there's, like, an old <laughs> record, I just put them together. Right. That's interesting. Yeah, um, I just saw um, uh, this little, it went around the internet, so maybe you saw it too, but I saw this little movie of um, Dave Grohl, and he talked about how all of his drum sounds on Nevermind he stole from a gap band. No way. <laughs> I haven't what? seen that. And then he does it. And then, you know, they super cut it together for you. And it's totally true. That's and so I, funny. And not only is that amazing, but also I just love that he's so open about it. You know, right. he's just, yeah, I just did like, I did that. And it right. sounds like white, you know, grunge rage, but it's right. actually from like this funky seventies, not very white like music that was being made there and i think that's like i i love that and so i think that was also part of um what i learned that like yeah if you like something go and like take it put it in your thing right have it influence you but well i mean writing is a little bit like if you're lifting passages people are going to know yeah right away but i mean you know there's nothing when you hear the drums on those things you don't think oh my goodness someone should sue you think oh i see how the history works and literature is a long long tradition and if you start saying i'm going to take you know i'm going to take what i like from Tony Morrison, I'm going to take what I like from Raymond Chandler. I'm going to take what I like from Ursula Le Guin. You're going to get really interesting stuff. Yeah. And I think you, when you use the word rhythm, I think that's totally accurate. And and also having a music background, I'm sure you can appreciate it more than maybe a lot of writers. But I think when you're reading your own stuff and you and you feel the cadence and, and you know that it's got to be a certain cadence because of this tension you're trying to build, 
you either feel it or you don't, but it, to me, it is about rhythm and the beats and the, you know, am I, am I, you know, feeling my heart palp- palpitate more because I'm reading this. Um, if you're writing something scary, for example. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or I mean, just, um, is your attention wandering? I mean, that's what I always think, you know, I, I it's, and for me, often it's the like parts that I polish the most that I end up cutting. I just work. I'm, it's like, Oh, it's a description. And then I work on it. And it's like, Oh, what a clever description with a little illusion in the middle. And then I put it in and I go through it. I'm like, that is so boring. <laughs> just what you want to be with the characters and right. I go out the window and describe something for eight sentences. You got to get that out. But you lose perspective a little bit, right? Because you've been working on the same thing over and over again. And and it's easy for me, at least it's easy to start doubting my instincts and be like, no, no, I think this is good. <laughs> and then well, that's now, where your editor comes in. <laughs> for sure. Although I also now have the profound luxury of um, I put stuff away for a year. Usually. Yeah. And so it's a great, I mean, it's, it, you know, you really have to get to a position where you can afford literally and philosophically and career-wise and everything to do that. Um, but it's magical to me because I have a fireproof box. I used to keep it in the crisper of the refrigerator, but my wife <laughs> had a fireproof box as a way of saying that I shouldn't keep my manuscripts in the refrigerator anymore. Um, so you print it out and you put it in, in, in yeah. a fireproof box. And then a year later, it's like, I don't even remember, you know, I'll kind of remember the gist of it. Right. And then I'll, I'll dive in there and all this stuff that I thought was so cool, so smart. No, it's all. But probably the opposite also happens to a certain degree. You're like, wow, this is really compelling. I don't even remember this uh, writing about this, but th- this is the part that's really interesting. And maybe I'll expand on this. It's always a roller coaster. I start right. it and I think, oh, this isn't bad. And then like, oh, Oh man, no, 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 no. And then, Oh no. Okay. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah. It gets me there. And that's, I mean, Stephen King says the same thing about putting your work away. And and I've always had that same reaction. I'm like, wow, it must be nice to put yourself away for a year. Yeah. When I was starting out and writers said that, I always assumed they were lying. (laughs) I I don't know why. Yeah. Nobody does that. And then the first time I did it, it wasn't that long ago, but it was um, just kind of circumstances meant that I had to go work on something else. And so before I knew it, a year had gone by. And I remember that I I took it from my box, from the CRISPR, and I walked down uh, to this cafe and I opened it. And I, you know, and I thought to myself, you're going to have six months to get back into this book. It's going to take you forever. And by the end of reading it, I was like half done with what I knew had to be changed. You know, huh. I just had all these X's through. I just thought, oh, it was so clear. Wow. Um, um, and, you know, I mean, I think that's all something we've wondered about other people's culture. You know, when you watch a movie and you think, how could they have let that get here? You know, how do they do it? And right. the answer is we're in a hurry often. <laughs> yeah, you know? that's true. So what do you, when, when you teach writers, what do you advise them if they can't do that, if they don't have that time? I mean, if you could, I think if you can get some time away, particularly yeah. if you finish the draft, right? I mean, unless you are working on some crazy deadline, in which case you're probably not a beginning writer, like you can take 10 days off. Yeah, you not think totally. About it. And you can really, really not think about it. You can watch movies and read books that have nothing to do with what you're doing. You can really get out of the space that the book is in. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, not everybody can, 
take a year off, but, um, but you can, I think there's ways to remove yourself from the thing that you're working on. So what was the, what was the big break working on all these crappy jobs and, 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 and writing your first uh, few hundred uh, bad pages? I mean, there wasn't a big break. It happened really gradually. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's good to hear. Yeah. I sold, um, my first novel, the basic eight for $5,000. So that was not, um, what we, what anyone would call a big break. I was very excited. Of course. Yeah. And and in fact, if anything, it kind of tightened the screws on my own desperation because it was like, it was one thing to be like broke and living in a crappy apartment when your dream hasn't come true. Right. Like your dream comes true. And you and you're like, yay! I have like six weeks rent now. Right. <laughs> like then right. you have to start being just, just enough to give you a taste. Yeah, and um, and then kind of out of that came um my first contract for a series of unfortunate events, which was the first four volumes. Um, but I remember the subject matter was so dark. Even my literary agent said, "I don't think you're going to publish all four of these. Like I think they'll, <laughs> I think they'll pay you out, but they." They'll probably cancel beforehand, and because um, huh. they didn't think it would sell necessarily the way that they had hoped. I mean, yeah, I just think it was it was again for a small amount of money, and I was working with an editor and a designer too, and um, the illustrator Brett Helquist was new, um, and we were all they all just kind of left us alone because it wasn't that much risk from the publisher, right? But, um, no one thought anything in particular would happen, and. Um, the first event I went to, to when the first two books were published, the first two volumes were published together. And I went to Lansing, Michigan, and I was in one of these like cavernous chain bookstores where they'd set up like, you know, half a million seats. Right. There were two people there yeah, and they were both grownups. So I didn't know what to do. And I just did whatever I tried to do. And then afterwards they came up to me and they said, we are from the rival bookstore chain. And we hate your books. And we just had to f- see like what kind oh of, Oh my God. And <laughs> that's so aggressive. Yeah. And it was um, uh, like, th- that was also not a big break. You know, like I had to go no. back to the hotel room and be like, Oh my God. They're like, they flew me here and they're paying my hotel room. And like, I got two people to come and they, and they're not only not their haters, books, like making sure the books are not available at the other store. It's so cool. brutal. Yeah. So, it, I mean, it, um, it slowly began to, um, to kind of gain momentum. I started meeting, um, some early readers who were really enthusiastic and they were kind of my kind of people. I mean, they were often young versions of me, but they were, they were looking, they were interested in kind of peculiar dark things the way I was. So I began to believe that there might be enough people in there that would make that. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was not, um, uh, it took a while. It was, it wasn't a big break. There was a slow realization, I think. Well, I think that's good for, aspiring writers to hear that, you know, because you do hear about the people with the, the big early breaks, the version novel sells, and all of a sudden they're writing full time. And that's, you know, that's certainly not the norm. Um, the norm is you, you write and write and write for years and years and you make a little bit of money, but you never, <laughs> never necessarily quit your day job. Um, but it's great to hear about people who have, you know, achieved excellent success and to the degree that they can write full time and but it didn't happen overnight because it's I think it helps. Yeah, and, and I always had fantasies about it happening overnight. Right. When I was just starting out. My wife had this really horrible job, 
And I had this fantasy that like my agent would call me and say like, you know, whatever, you got a million dollars. And then I would, my fantasy was that I would get in my car and drive to my wife's office and be like, come on, you're, you're quitting. Like, tell right. me you're quitting. That right. was my fantasy. <laughs> you could see it in a movie like scene already. You're yeah, exactly. And just like knowing that my wife would totally stand up and be like, okay, if you say so, like, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And that did not happen. <laughs> do you, you know, and I know we got to wrap up here soon, but do you now knowing that as a kid, you had this aspiration, do you look back and, and have just <laughs> profound gratitude about, wow, I made this work and, and, you know, the world worked for me in order for this to all materialize the way that you would probably hoped. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of gratitude. I think what I have most of all is a real, like a constant sense of bewilderment and disbelief. That's yeah. what it feels like to me. That's a great way to go through life, by the way. Uh, I do, I think so. That's kind of part of what um, the new book is about. It's uh, about right. uh, bewilderment, but um but it, and it's kind of about this idea that if you are confused, that is actually the closest you're getting to understanding something. If you're confused about the world, that is probably you're probably understanding it better than any time that you were sure. Right. Because you're at least thinking about it. Yeah. And you're kind of living in the space of how confusing it is to be here, to be alive and to be here. So that's I mean, it's very, very strange to me. Um that it happened and particularly because what I wanted to do was so strange and um, so unlikely, you know, I think, cause I wanted to be a writer, but I mean, I knew a lot of people wanted to be writers and in some ways it felt like wanting to be Spider-Man, you know, it's like <laughs> good for you, but that's not going to happen. Right. <laughs> <Says> <laughs> and, like, you. Chances of Spider-Man of becoming Spider-Man low. No, there's zero. That's right. your chance of being Spider-Man. Right. So um, the fact that it happened, yeah, is very, very strange to me. So it, 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 it's uh, grateful for sure. But I think the way any kind of like any kind of real miracle that's happened to you is more confusing. Than right, right. Well, yeah. living in a state of confusion is not a bad thing. And, and I'm looking forward to reading that new book. Well, um, you. If you're up for it, we're going to do a little, very short storytelling. Yeah, I'm ready. Um, so I've got three books picked out, you're going to pick a sentence and we're just going to alternate sentences back and forth for just a couple minutes. Okay. Um, so I've got, uh, just some classics. I've got interview with a vampire, a classic, uh, hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, which is one okay. of my all time favorite yeah. books, um, or slate house by David Mitchell. Oh, that was, that's on. Unex- this was an unexpected. I think I blurbed that book. Oh, did you? Huh? Oh, I really huh. like that book. I think that's an underrated David Mitchell book. It's an accessible David Mitchell book. I, I, uh, maybe that's why it's underrated. Yeah, <laughs> rather. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, he's a magical author. I think um, he came here and I, uh, I like courted him at a bar. I was like, <laughs> Eight things I like about your book, and he was like, "It's nice to meet you. Please get out of my way." Um, <laughs> I mean, he was very kind, but he was yeah, right. I, I'm not your new friend, man. I was like, okay. <laughs> oh, oh, Tom Waits shows up, then I can corner him. Uh, okay, so I choose a book. I'm going to interview those. with a vampire because I think that's okay. the one I know the least. Okay, and choose a page between one and three fifty. Uh, two hundred and thirteen. Okay, and then a sentence from like one through five. Uh, four. Okay. 
Oh, all right. Uh, the tension mounted in me, the dark around me becoming more and more menacing. I couldn't remember how many windows there were in the room. And now I kicked myself for not remembering. I walked, I walked down the corridor and started to count, but the numbers seemed to change every time I lifted my finger to a window. Was it 12? Was it 13? Surely it was 12. Why did this keep happening to me? I wondered. It had happened since she'd gone missing. There was a door at the end of the corridor that I knew I had to open because it was either going to provide a clue about where she was or it was going to be something far more sinister. I walked forward towards it. The door seemed to rattle even before I turned the handle. It was either locked or someone was pushing against it. I tried again and again. The handle was warm as if somebody else had just had their palms on it and a little slick. And when I pulled my hand away, I looked at my own palm and I saw blood on my hand. It didn't come from me. It came from the handle. Go away, said the voice behind the door. Finally, go away. You shouldn't have come. And had it been any other voice but hers, I might have done what she said. But she'd been missing for two weeks. And that was her on the other side of the door. And her tone wasn't one of anger. It was one of desperation. She did not want me to go away. I felt the dizziness return, the uncertainty that had placed me here to begin with but I pushed as hard as I could against the door and I felt her struggle and then let go. I think we're going to call it there. Cause I, <laughs> I, I think that's got a beautiful setup. So, so for the, right. for your next book, when I see that, I want some of the royalties. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think we, we have to pay Anne Rice a little bit too. It's going to be a complicated. That's one. true. That's true. Talking yeah. about we're actually like uh, stealing passages from a book. Yeah. That was fun. That was, there was, that was good tension. Yeah. It was, um, I was, I was glad to have a, I was glad to be in my office and to be fixating on various blank points in my office that I often fixate on. Cause I think if I'd been having eye contact with you, I don't think I'd been able to. Oh, I always, yeah. I always look off into the distance because otherwise it, it freaks me. And it's, and it's always different with everybody. And you know, some people, we have a real connection and, and like this one and others, it's just like, um, <laughs> and it's always stressful for me cause I got to do it every time. <laughs> <laughs> that must be a good skill for you. It's fun. It's fun. Sometimes I, I, I won't lie. Sometimes I get very nervous because I'm like, oh, what if I just got nothing? <laughs> yeah. Well, what a what a pleasure to talk to you, and and thank you for taking the time out out of your day. And congratulations on the upcoming release. I'm I'm excited to see it. And um, uh, thank you very much. I um I hope you don't have COVID. I hope no one has COVID. I I agree. I agree. I hope COVID just goes away. Yeah. So well, thank you. Enjoy the rest of your week. And uh, again, I appreciate your time. You too. Take it easy. Bye. So my cat has just joined me to record this outro. So he might start howling, but he's, uh, he's, he's been sleeping all day, which is very rare. So now he's, he's loose and he's a little bit amped up and he might actually jump onto my chair. Uh, but that was my conversation with Daniel Handler, also known as Lemony Snicket. Uh, definitely uh, a fun time. I really, 
I felt engaged with him. <clears throat> I felt like, you know, he was very revealing and very thoughtful about his comments about writing and lots of good advice in there to writers who are not only new, but uh, established. So uh, uh, a trove of information. If you want to know more about him, you can go to LemonySnicket.com. And if you want to know more about me or subscribe to my newsletter or read some of my musings, just go to CarterWilson.com. Uh, that's it for this episode. More episodes out soon. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Take care. Be safe. Be safe.